BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motor I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Members of your organization have played and do play a great part in the building of America. I don't think it was anything different than what a normal event of that type would have involved. We were both sort of shouting, Mr. President, Mr. President. Reagan turned toward the rope line, and he was going to answer. And then all of a sudden, I heard a pop. Six. Bang, 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 bang. For the first 40, 50 minutes or so, there was no indication that the president had been shot. This just in, shots have reportedly been fired. Officials say the president was not hit. Reagan's lung collapsed, and they thought they were going to lose him right there on the table. There had been no preparation for this kind of an event where people thought through how they were going to handle it. You wanted me to wait till I'd gathered all the facts? No. <laughs> you report immediately. I thought, I can't believe this is happening. Let's get it nailed down, somebody. Let's <clears throat> find out you realize you're probably covering the biggest story of your life. I'm Brian Williams. Ronald Reagan was not new to the American people. He'd been a middling movie actor, a pitchman for GE, and later California governor. But once elected president in 1980, he had arrived in the big leagues, just two months into his presidency, and reporters were still trying to get a handle 
on how this man would govern. That fell to members of the White House press corps, people like Susan King, who covered the White House for ABC News. The White House is the best job in the world of journalism, particularly in Washington, until you have it. You're sort of locked in this teeny little room, at least if you're a broadcaster, with two other colleagues. There's a teeny little radio spot in the back where you do your recording. And you work the whole day trying to reach people, but you don't wander around. You don't really get to see individuals who know what's going on. So it's a difficult spot, much tougher than people realize. I was the number two behind Sam Donaldson. And uh, the most important schedule of the day for a White House reporter was that daily briefing around the noon hour. People got prepared all day to challenge the spokesman of the president and to really try to squeeze out information. It was always confrontational. Didn't matter if the president was one party or another. That daily briefing was a battleground. David Prosperi was President Reagan's assistant press secretary. If you're reporters in the White House, it's probably like the biggest police beat. You know, you have the White House that's constantly focusing on the message that it wants to get out. And you have broadcast journalists, print journalists, looking for what they feel is the real story. And that's the struggle of the White House press office, is how to manage those expectations with the expectations that you want to deliver on. Sam Donaldson was the legendary chief White House correspondent for ABC News. Reagan himself, you couldn't, at least I couldn't dislike the man. He was friendly in, 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 in... a, a very good sense. Uh, he, he, he was an optimist, as you know, and we like optimists. Uh, he was a commanding presence, and particularly as a speaker. Overall, the president had, I think, a good relationship with all of the members of the media. I think going back to his days in movies, he almost felt like he was one of them. He understood the role that they played. He understood that their access to him and his administration was critical to his success in terms of communicating what he wanted to say to the American people. I made a rule when I was with Jimmy Carter, although I had a couple of other people in the booth with me from ABC, and they were good reporters, but I always wanted to be there. And so on the 30th of March, when he went to the Washington Hilton to speak to Bob Jean's AFL-CIO division, a routine speech, it was lunchtime, and some of my friends said, well, why don't you let your number two go? There was nothing there. And I said, I'm going to be with Reagan. I was going to accompany Larry Speaks, who was the deputy press secretary, to the Washington Hilton in the motorcade with the president, where he was going to speak to representatives of the AFL-CIO. And at the last moment, Jim Brady told Larry that he wanted to go in place of Larry. So Jim went in the motorcade with the president. I was in the van with the press pool. Jim Brady was the White House press secretary, and like President Reagan, he was new to the job. I knew Brady, and I had a pretty good relationship with him. What's little known is that Jim Brady's relationship with all the press corps was really fraying right before the assassination attempt. He did have some favorites, people that he had gotten to know on the campaign trail, where there was trust. He realized that there was a really negative, this sort of battleground that was the daily briefing. And he was, I think, struggling with that at the time. 
He could cut you off. So if you had no relationship with him, yes, you're cut off. But you never got a lot of good information from Jim Brady. He did not have the deep access with Reagan that some other press secretaries have had with presidents. The speech took place in the ballroom in the Washington Hilton, in, which is kind of in the, in the lower level. And there's a separate entrance and exit to that room, which had been used for dignitaries. I was at the Washington Hilton as well. Both of us went over that day. And the reason I was there, too, was that it was the first time that the president was going to speak to what was considered a Democratic, not Reagan audience. He was pretty persuasive in front of a microphone. You and your forebears built our nation. Now, please help us rebuild it. He had a very good performance that day and a strong speech and got a lot of applause. There was no booing or anti-Reagan kind of activity, and we thought there might be, and that was one of the reasons we had double-teamed it that day. We had two cameras there, a Styx camera, meaning it was on a tripod with other cameras from the other networks on a platform to record the speech. And we had a roving cameraman who had his camera on the shoulder to take cutaway shots of the audience and, and, and all of that so that we could use it to edit the, the speech later. The Washington Hilton was considered among the most secure venues in town for any presidential appearance because it was set up for it. It had an enclosed passageway known as the President's Walk, which was built for that purpose in the aftermath of the JFK assassination almost 20 years earlier. It was this passageway that Reagan used to exit the building after finishing his luncheon speech to organize labor. The only flaw in the design was the president still had to step outside and walk 30 feet or so to his armored limousine. And on that gray, drizzly day in Washington, when Reagan appeared and waved to the cameras, a young, deranged man named John Hinckley Jr. had snuck into the press area with a handgun. We later learned Hinckley was obsessed with the actress Jodie Foster and thought he could impress her by shooting the president. Sam had said, I'm going to follow the president out for that one moment when the president goes out a doorway into the car. Sam was very good at uh, throwing questions at the president. It was sort of one of his most well-documented skills and something he liked doing a lot. And so he was out by the uh, doorway. And I stayed behind to do interviews with some of the union members. Hank Brown was the cameraman's name, a very good cameraman, set up his camera. I was standing behind him. Correspondents from CBS and NBC were sort of standing behind their cameras. And we waited for the president to emerge. With him were his two Secret Service people who always were accompanying a president when they were walking in public. And... Uh, his press secretary, Jim Brady, and uh, there was a policeman named Delahanty from the Washington Police Force who was supposed to be watching the rope line. And behind the rope line were members of the press, but also civilians who had not been vetted. And in these days, people didn't have all the electronic equipment that is used today to make certain that people who came close to him didn't have a weapon, didn't have a gun. Uh, but uh, we didn't do that at that point. I came out with the press pool, and the press pool was always located differently than the rest of the media because the press pool needed to be ready to go when the president was ready to go. And everybody's waiting for the president and his group to come out, and in that group included Mike Deaver, 
and Jim Brady, Secret Service detail. The other press and the public are along a rope line on the right-hand side of the motorcade. And that was probably the last time that you had a, a situation where the public and the press were pooled together because in that group was John Hinckley. Now, I was at that moment beginning to shout a question to Reagan and Mike Putzel, the AP, who was a little farther down the line, we were both sort of shouting, Mr. President, Mr. President. Reagan turned toward the rope line and he was going to answer. Judy Woodruff, who at the time was with NBC News, came up to me and asked if I would walk her up because she wanted to talk to Jim Brady. So I said, yes. So we started walking on the left-hand side of the motorcade. And then all of a sudden I heard a pop. Then I heard five more pops. And I said, someone's shooting. Six. Bang, 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 bang. Just just very staccato-like. I watched the president. Hank Brown, our cameraman, noticing the sudden commotion, realizing that the shots had come from his right, swerved his camera over and caught the pileup as Secret Service and Bystaff, everybody jumped on Hinckley. I watched the president. I was aware that other people were falling to the ground, but I did not see any evidence that he'd been hit. Uh, he had a quizzical look on his face as the first shots were out, and Jerry Parr, his lead agent, the door was already open, which was standard, pushed him into the car. So I ducked down, I pulled Judy down next to me, and within seconds, the motorcade is just zooming right by me. And as you can imagine, there is pure mayhem. All the TV cameras are scurrying around, taking uh, shots of different things. And then you see over on the wall on the right, you see the Secret Service forming a literal human barrier around who turned out to be John Hinckley. They had captured him, threw him against the wall. There was a Secret Service agent with a machine gun turned towards the outside of this group basically protecting the group and the alleged assailant from perhaps another shooter, which I think the Secret Service had picked up in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. They wanted to make sure that this alleged assailant wasn't killed by somebody else. So then on the ground in front, I see DC police officer Delahanty, who was on the ground. He, he had been facing the, the press pool and the public, and I believe he had been shot in the neck so he was lying on the ground. The Secret Service agent, Tim McCarthy, who was part of the president's personal protection detail. When I was ducking, Tim stood up because that was his training. He stood up to make himself a shield for the president. He was shot in the stomach, so he was on the ground. And then Jim Brady, who had been walking in front of the president, was face down on the ground. Rick Ahern, who was the lead advance agent for this visit to the hotel, was kneeling next to Jim, holding a handkerchief to Jim's head. The white handkerchief had turned red, and Rick yelled at me, he said, do you have a handkerchief? And I did. I threw my handkerchief at Rick and then went inside the hotel. And as we know, of course, afterwards, the last bullet from Hinckley's gun hit the framework of the car door, slid around the door, and as the president was being pushed into the car, punctured his chest and lodged very close to his heart and had punctured a lung. I was coming down the escalator in the Washington Hilton when somebody yelled and said, the president's been shot. There was just a lot of confusion. By that time, the, the president's uh, limousine was gone. I actually sort of started interviewing people who were in buildings 
right around that entrance of the Washington Hilton because people would always come out when the president was going to be seen and probably wave. And so I did find some people who had seen what was going on and I was collecting information and trying to get more and more detail. And then I went back to the White House. As it turned out, when Jerry Parr threw President Reagan into the limousine, the president landed awkwardly in the back of the seat and Jerry was checking him for any uh, bleeding or any bullet holes or anything of that type and couldn't find anything. So the initial decision was made to go back to the White House. And then once the president got upright in his seat, Jerry noticed some oxygenated blood coming out of the president's mouth. And then Jerry made the call to direct the motorcade to go directly to George Washington University Hospital. And that decision, according to doctors, uh, saved the president's life. I raced into the main lobby of the Washington Hilton looking for a phone called the White House Press Office. Uh, I reached a young lady named Flo Tossig. I said, Flo, give me Larry. Flo instinctively knew what was going on. She passed me through to Larry Speaks. I said, Larry, the president's been shot at and Jim's been hit. He said, got it. Thank you. And he hung up. So that I was told was how the White House first knew that the president had been, at the time, as I knew, shot at and that Jim Brady had been been shot. As soon as the door shut in the car, I rushed in to the Washington Hilton. We were on the ground level. It was about 226 or 27. I saw a phone right there on the desk of a tourist bus line. No one was there. And I dialed the number of our news bureau in Washington. Fortunately for me, we we had an operator. And she immediately answered uh, ABC News. And I said, it's Donaldson. Quickly give me the 320 line. That was a line that rang in New York. It rang at various places in Washington. In other words, it was a hot line for information. And you could hear people answering. I said, it's Donaldson and this is no drill. Shots have been fired at President Reagan outside the Washington Hilton. I didn't see any evidence that he'd been hit, but I don't know that he hasn't been hit. I said, I know people have been injured, I suppose, because they fell to the ground. One of them looked like Jim Brady. I saw blood coming from his head. And I was immediately transferred to a radio line that recorded the news within seconds. We will continue our story in a moment. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is Brian Williams. Welcome back. 
This just in, shots have reportedly been fired as President Reagan left the Washington Hilton Hotel this afternoon. White House officials say the president was not hit, but there are reports that three people were wounded by gunfire. In the confusion early on, it wasn't thought that the president was hit. We saw him get shoved into the limo, which then sped away to what we assumed would be the White House. Ross Simpson was anchor for Mutual Radio News. I was uh, new at the Mutual Broadcasting System as an evening anchor, and I was headed to the Commerce Department to pick up some economic reports. And I heard a radio report, and it was just chilling. It said that there had been a shooting at a hotel in Washington. president was involved, and so was his press secretary. At that time, they weren't talking about uh, President Reagan being shot. In fact... For the first 40, 50 minutes or so, there was no indication that the president had been shot. I got off the highway immediately and checked in at a phone booth, called the office and said, look, I've got two hours to give you. Where do you need me? And they said, well, Reagan is being taken to Georgetown University Hospital. Go there. So I hung up, jumped in my car, started up the beltway, headed up toward the hospital. And I got to thinking... Georgetown, that's a cancer center. That's the wrong place. They want to take him to George Washington University Hospital, which is a trauma center. So I'll go there, and if I made a mistake, I'll say, hey, I I just simply misunderstood you in the chaos and confusion. So when I came onto the Whitehurst Freeway, which leads on to K Street, and I approached Washington Circle, I saw several hundred people in this circle rushing toward the hospital entrance, the emergency room entrance. I saw police. I saw them beginning to stretch the yellow tape on the police lines. And I was able to uh, to find a parking spot. I got out and I drifted down 23rd Street, which uh, leads down to the State Department. And that is the west entrance to the hospital. And police were already beginning to stretch tape across the front door of the hospital. And then I saw a little sidewalk going down the side of the building, like an alleyway. And I thought, well, I wonder where this leads. So I went down, and there's a door, and I peer in the door, and I'm looking into the gift shop. I thought, hot dog, I've got a place to cash a $5 bill and get a pocket full of quarters for the payphones. So I dumped into the uh, gift shop, got my money. Walked out of the gift shop, and there's a bank of payphones. I got on the phone and called the office, checked in, and all of a sudden, I heard some commotion. I saw two men in trench coats. I knew they were Secret Service, and I saw two women that they were escorting. I really didn't recognize their face. They were moving so fast. I thought, they could be from the White House. I'm going to drop in right behind them and follow them. I was wearing a business suit. I was carrying no equipment, no recorder, no notepad or pen. So um, I looked like uh, maybe a Secret Service agent or an undercover cop in D.C. They never questioned me. We went up the stairwell and we went up to the third floor. And all of a sudden, we're standing outside the emergency room entrance. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, here I am right at ground zero where history is going to be made. You're going to have one shot to get some information, make a call, and you'll probably get thrown out of here by the police. And this place was absolutely crawling with Secret Service, uniformed police officers from MPD, the Metropolitan Police Department. 
And there was also hospital security in there. In the press briefing room, it was very chaotic. Everybody's clamoring for news. There's no internet. You know, you're looking at the wire machines, you know, AP, UPI, Reuters, to see what what's being said. You know, there's two levels to the White House press office. There's the lower press office, which sits right outside the press briefing room, and then you go up, you go up a few steps to the upper press offices, which is where the press secretary and the deputy press secretaries were sitting at the time. So there was a lot of activity in both areas, and I eventually made my way up to the upper press office and was helping answer some phones up there. I rushed back to the bureau and sat down with Frank Reynolds. At first, I was sitting with Frank, and we were talking it over. This is a, this is a event. Clearly, there had been an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. I delivered exactly in, in calmer fashion what I said on the hotline originally and what I'd seen there, my observations, etc. And, and Frank was in the midst of saying, well, fortunately, the president is apparently okay. He was taken back to the White House because that's what we thought we had been told he was on the way. When someone slipped a, a piece of paper under, and Frank was looking to the camera, and I looked down at the, as the, at the paper as Frank was saying, the president has not been shot. And Frank kind of glanced at the paper and I pointed to the words. I didn't say it to Frank or to the audience. Lynn Nofziger told reporters at the hospital that the president was not wounded. He was wounded. My God. He was, uh, the president was hit. He is in stable condition. All this information, the, the president was hit. He was hit in the left chest, according to this, but he is in stable condition. And the typed information I have is that he is okay. Speak up. One shot, stable condition. The president was hit. I don't blame Frank. I think I got up immediately because my rule in covering presidents is I'm going to be where the president is. And so I went over to the hospital at that point and spent the afternoon there. And all of a sudden, uh, a doctor comes out in his white coat. And I looked at the uh, name on the jacket and it said Cobriner. And he said... Good afternoon, Mrs. Tate and Mrs. Brady. I'm Dr. Kobriner. I'm heading up the trauma team that is trying to save the life of the president and Mrs. Brady, your husband. I'd like to brief you on what we know at this moment. So I'm standing there looking over their shoulders and I wasn't touched by anyone. I had to commit everything to memory. And uh, Kobriner mentioned the fact that The bullet that had entered the side of President Reagan was lodged about a quarter inch from his heart and that he was having difficulty breathing, but they were trying to give him additional oxygen. He said, I'll be back with some updates. So he goes back in behind the doors and Sheila Tate, who is Nancy Reagan's press secretary, gets on a a nearby phone and uh, calls and briefs uh, the White House as to what is going on here. Mrs. Tate finishes the call. There's only one telephone. I step up, put a quarter in, and dial mutual across the river. And they said, where are you? I said, you're not going to believe this, but I'm standing outside the emergency room, and I've just received a briefing on the president's condition and the condition of James Brady. Let's do it. Let's go live. Ross Simpson has another report for us. He's standing by at the George Washington University. I spit out everything that I knew, everything I could remember. He has been shot the chest, the lower left chest. Setting the scene of what was happening, the confusion, the chaos, 
hung up, uh, told him I would try to call back again. So I'm still standing there, and a police officer comes over and says, how's it going today, bud? I said, uh, terrible day. He said, you got that right. So, you know, I kind of uh, warmed him up a little bit. He didn't ask for any identification, didn't ask who I was. Secret Service were walking all around me, and I thought, I can't believe this is happening. Uh, You know, here I am right in the midst of this. They heard me filing a report. So, so far, so good. And all of a sudden, uh, I heard somebody yell, get some oxygen, get some oxygen. And I thought, what the heck is going on now? Well, Reagan's lung collapsed, and they thought they were going to lose him right there on the table. The Constitution stipulates that when the president becomes incapacitated, the powers and duties of the office then pass to the vice president to be followed by the Speaker of the House and the most senior member of the Senate. But as reporters quizzed the White House for more information about the president's condition, Secretary of State Alexander Haig took to the podium to boldly declare to the microphone and cameras that he was in control. As of now, I am in control here in the White House, pending return of the vice president and in in close touch with him. If something came up, I would check with him, of course. Secretary Haig was in the Situation Room in the basement of the White House. And remember, they're monitoring what's going on around the world. Is this part of a global threat or attack against the United States? So they're monitoring activity by other countries. They're also monitoring what's being said on the news. And I believe that Secretary Haig seemed to think that other White House people were giving the wrong representation of who was in charge, given that the president was at the hospital. Vice President Bush had been flying to Texas. And I'm not sure right at that moment if the vice president had started to return to Washington, D.C. So the secretary wanted to make sure everybody knew that someone was in charge. It was very chaotic. It was unclear who was in charge. The phrase of the night, Lynn Nofziger came by and briefed reporters that night, you know, gave all these quips that Reagan was supposedly saying. And I talked to Nofziger, you know, long after this evening. And he said, well, you know, none of you reporters really asked specific enough questions, and I was never going to give specific enough information. So we were getting kind of the myth of the night. I don't think there was any place where there was clear information. So we were asking a lot of questions. Again, you know, it was chaotic because there was lots of reporters also entering this very small briefing room, and people were just throwing questions at them. And everyone was trying to be in charge and look calm. So there was that sense that we weren't getting the straight story, that everything was fine, but it was unclear who was really making the decisions. There are 20-some people in this little office space all yelling questions and asking people things at the same time. And so confusion was at its highest. And unfortunately, part of the mayhem was he had so many different people going into the press briefing room speaking on behalf of the White House, whether it was Larry Speaks, David Gergen, Al Haig, you know, I think there are other people that were up there. There wasn't any real coordinated communication message. And honestly, there'd been no preparation for this kind of an event where people thought through how they were going to handle it. We reporters learned to beware of the fog of war, meaning those first reports coming from the scene of a breaking news event are often wrong. 
And on that day, it was a report that Press Secretary Jim Brady had died of his head wound. That rumor made its way to major news outlets, and one anchor, Frank Reynolds of ABC News, who was on live television, straight up lost it on the air when he realized the report he had just broadcast had been wrong, and Brady was thankfully alive. I remember it vividly, vividly, vividly. You know, we were hot mic'd, so there was one of us, or three of us in the White House that night, and I had the mic on at that time because they wanted one of us sort of hot at any time to report on what we knew or if there was any changes. And so there was one of us who was supposed to be always prepared to talk. So I had my earphones on and, and my I had the mic on. And I heard Frank through my ears. Frank said, oh my goodness, it's the White House. Jim Brady is dead. And I took that microphone off and threw it and pulled the earphones uh, out of my ears and said, I don't know that he's dead. I don't, I'm not going to be talking about this. So I, of course, knew that he was then upset, and that became the atmosphere of which we were all working. And, of course, I tried to find out why was he getting that for one of my colleagues. And it is a story that I don't think has always come out with all the dimensions. I was involved in that story. I was sitting at a at one of the... Uh administrative assistance desks. Uh, I was on the phone with a with a colleague named Jim Kuhn, one of the advance men for President Reagan. Jim was in Springfield, Illinois. He was advancing a trip for the president for the next day. The president was going to speak to the Illinois state legislature. Since that event now was not going to happen, Jim was coordinating the travel for Jim Brady's parents to get to Washington, D.C. So I was on the phone with Jim, helping him with some details. And a reporter from Associated Press comes over in front of me while I'm on the phone with the, with the handset to, uh, in, in my right ear. And she asks me, can you confirm that Jim Brady is dead? And I'm listening to Jim Kuhn talk on the phone. So I shook my head no to the reporter. So the second question from AP was, can you follow up for me and find out if Jim is dead? So I had not confirmed it, but I said I would, I would follow. And I did that by nodding my head up and down as yes. Bill Greenwood from ABC News on, comes to me on my right, says, can you confirm that Jim Brady is dead? And I looked at Bill as I was nodding my head up and down to the other reporter, and Bill took that as meaning confirmation that Jim Brady was dead. So Bill Greenwood went on the air and said that the White House has confirmed that Jim Brady is dead. So that turned into Frank Reynolds on ABC reporting it and then getting denial of that confirmation. I'm not sure from where, maybe from the White House or whatever, you know, Frank Reynolds went into a rant about let's get it right. Let's get it nailed down, somebody. Let's <clears throat> find out. Let's get it straight uh, so that we can we can report this uh, accurately. Uh. But you never have to be first to tell that someone's dead. And I knew that Jim Brady's family and his kids were watching this, that it was a tenuous situation. But there was no indication yet that he was close to death. There might have been brain death. But I knew that it was not that clear. And so it was very vivid that we made that mistake. And I understood Frank Reynolds' anger. But I also understood at that moment 
that our job and a night like that, an assassination attempt night, was one where we had to be ultimately calm. And uh, I'm no as the calmest person in the world, but that lives on in Frank Reynolds' legacy. Well, Frank, I am at the White House right now, but all the information concerning the president's health is being given out at the hospital itself. But I have been able to confirm that the president is en route to surgery right now. Those here at the White House have been told it did not, the bullet did not hit his heart. However, there's some people who are still wondering. The lung has collapsed, we are told. Meanwhile, Ross Simpson kept filing reports from the hospital where President Reagan and Jim Brady were about to undergo surgery. I've got to find yet another phone. So I saw another bank of phones. And all of a sudden, two people came up from behind me and grabbed each of my arms. And one leaned in and said, it's time for you to leave. And I said, I'm not through yet. They said, yes, you are through. And I said, well, guys, I can find my way out. And they said, no, we will escort you out. You're not to come back in this building again. The six shots from Hinckley's revolver claimed four casualties. Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy was hit in the abdomen as he stood up to protect the president. He survives to this day. D.C. police officer Thomas Delahanty was shot in the neck. He survived as well. But Press Secretary Jim Brady was grievously wounded. The shaky TV coverage showed him bleeding on a sidewalk grate. He'd been shot in the head and was left badly incapacitated for the 30-plus remaining years of his life. Four American presidents have been killed by assassins' bullets. In fact, the slug inside Ronald Reagan's lung almost expanded that number to five. The proof of how close we came to losing a president that day was the sight later in the day of Air Force Two arriving at Andrews Air Force Base. Vice President Bush sped back to the White House from a trip to Texas. Had surgeons not saved the day, George H.W. Bush may well have been sworn into office as president. If this one shocking, gripping day in our country had turned instead into a national tragedy. I was a kid watching Kennedy's assassination. You know, you're playing back in your mind that the memories of the nation completely at a standstill. And you're in this moment saying, are we in another one of those moments? And you realize you're probably covering the biggest story of your life. And you're competing with your colleagues who are like elbows away from you. There's a tendency to want to know more or have more to say and to be the best network or the biggest newsmakers of the night. And so you have to be very, very careful, which is why I threw that microphone off. I think competition is always alive and well when it's a major news organization and a major national event. There's a lot of support among reporters and cameramen in certain circumstances, but in that tight little, very tight little room, the briefing room, each reporter is responding by phone back in that day um, to its boss in the bureau. And you cannot be beat. My job was to immediately report I won't name the person, but a prominent broadcast correspondent spent the first few minutes after the shots were fired interviewing people out there about their reaction. Well, that's something you do want to do, but that's not the first thing you want to do. Your job is to report the news and tell them what you know. If later you're wrong, and I was wrong, 
he had been shot. I said I hadn't seen any evidence that he'd been shot, although I carefully added, but I can't know that for sure. But later, if someone says, well, you reported uh, falsely. Yes, you wanted me to wait till I'd gathered all the facts? No, <laughs> you report immediately. And the biggest challenge, I think, for if, if you're a green reporter and you're faced with something like that, is to not understand your job. Look at what happened, listen to what happened, and then report it. I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now, please listen to this special message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident, or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need. The Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.